Three, two, one, go! Yeah. When someone dies, you might not remember the sound of their voice or the way they smiled at you. Oh, somebody, I need an ace. But one thing you never forget is the way they made you feel. There were six kids in our family, five girls and one boy. And we grew up in Dublin. Family life in the 1960s and 70s was a daily routine of meals and rituals and banter. But we were very lucky. Hi, Mum. We had a trump card. This is Michael. Our only brother, Mike. Comrades yonder, cried our chief. Charge for all that we hold dear as one man, and they are ours. Mike blazed a passionate trail through life and believed that you should always do the best you can. Sarsfield is the word, and Patrick Sarsfield is the man. Then, one sunny evening... When Mike was 29, he went out to play a game of football. And in his enthusiasm to win a ball, he collided with the hard pitch and died. Just like that. It was a pure accident. And the world, as we knew it, shattered. My brother Mike is now dead longer than he was alive. The stories of his life are like those of everyone we have loved who left us too soon. And it's in the details of their lives we find the strongest memories. You know James is starting first year in senior school. So often the tragedy of a sudden or shocking death clouds these memories. And that's how it was with me and Mike for a long time. But now, 30 years later, I know Mike is still with us somewhere. Back to the beginning. We almost missed out on knowing Mike altogether. When Mum was giving birth to Mike, she was given ether, which knocked her out. When I woke up, they said, here's your baby. And they gave me a skinny, black-haired baby. And I said, that's not mine. And they said, yes, it is. And I said, no, it isn't. So they disappeared with the baby who was all wrapped up, and came back with a glowing pink and white gorgeous baby, and that was Michael. <laughs> He'd red hair, pink cheeks, and looked very, very, very content. And that was him. Here we go round the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. Mike was second eldest and big brother to four of us. Kath, Bridgie, Anna... And me, Sheila. So and there, there he is there, look at him, making his communion in Mokris. He'd have been the same age as your Michael there. Mm. Oh my goodness, and white and ankle the, socks. And sandals. Very sweet and sandals, yeah. And the hair. The hair all oh. brushed to one side. Brushed yeah. to one side. All the grass, it is green around the valley. Dee, our dad, died ten years ago. But mum still lives in Renala, in the house they bought together over 60 years ago. So look at this room. There was always a fire going in here. It was a huge fire. And it was the only uh, room in the house that actually had heat in it. It's an ordinary four-bedroom, one-bathroom semi, filled with a very random collection of furniture. But their lives and ours can be seen in every corner. Oh, my God, where 
Where did you find that? That must have been up in the attic, was it? That's the tape recorder. The old Sony tape recorder. Yeah. That was the volume control. And it was the old reel-to-reel. Yeah. We were all intrigued because it was totally new. And I remember everybody clustering around it. And uh, there was always a huge excitement about it. Goodbye, people. I'm nearly... I'm seven. I'm nearly eight. There was always something happening in every room of the house. And you could hear a noise coming from every room upstairs and every room downstairs. But there were more people than there were rooms in the house. And the only place to get a bit of peace was on the stairs. I sprang to the stirrup and jaws and tea. I galloped. We find traces of the people we have lost in so many different and sometimes surprising places. Look at these, like cards from when he was very young to the parents. He absolutely adored words. He played with words. He played with words all the time. I think, look at this book here. He must have won this when he was in probably about eight. And like it's, it's uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and H. Ryder Haggard. Um, John Buchan. Love John Buchan. Ballantines. Like, he was always buried in all of these. Well, look, here's the script for The Mystery of Buchan Grange, which he wrote for us all, giving us all a part. Mike turned our small playroom into a theatre with the help of bedspreads, skipping ropes and his loyal team of sisters. Scene one, act two. <laughs> of course he was found drunk on the floor. His clothes are in the cupboard on this side of the bed. Oh, thanks. And don't be frightened by Horrid. Who's Horrid? Oh, Horrid's the butler. Well, he was always so alive and he always had things to do, either reading or making. Uh, no, but he made one feel very alive. Yeah. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, the four of us younger sisters squabbled all the time and the house was pretty chaotic. But no one remembers Mike getting involved. He just made life an adventure for us all and turned everyday things into a game. The original crib was, uh, it was beautiful and quite small, but Mike decided to elaborate and to create this absolute wonderland of of engineering and of beauty. And it had rocks and it had pieces of granite and it had every animal. But then gradually, because out of, I'd say, boredom, the crib got larger and larger. And then taking up the entire wall and the wise men had to walk for miles to get to, to the crib. And they'd be going up these aeroboard things that he would actually carve out. And it literally would go floor to ceiling, all the way across the mantelpiece. A sky that had little tiny holes poked in it with things that dangled. And they would have a star that came all the way down the side and sort of came down to the floor with a little beam of light that was sitting on it. One of the nicest things in life is being surrounded by people you love and creating moments which you can recall in quieter times and treasure forever. Okay, Grandma, you're playing for us. I loved the long summer evenings. There was always something going on in the garden and usually it involved everybody, which was a major treat to be included in that because there's 13 years between the youngest and the oldest and being the youngest... Uh, to be included in something that involved eight people and a dog was magic. Sweet. Do you remember the cricket season? Mike used to play cricket in school, so we played cricket here. I think we used a tennis racket as a cricket bat, but the ball was still fairly hard, and it went in through that window that number of times. 
There was also late night hockey. There was floodlit hockey when we turned around all the lights in the back of the house and we'd play hockey in the dark, which was just like it was violent and dangerous and really noisy. I have no idea how the neighbours put up with us. How far are we going? Here we go. How about okay. over there and back? Okay. In moments of real joy, time stands still. And when the summer came, we packed into the Ford console with Dobby, our dog, and guitars and teddies and sleeping bags, and we made our way to Dog's Bay near Roundstone in Connemara, where home for the next month was two tin huts with no running water and an outdoor sawdust toilet. Every single part of the garden had a story to tell. There were different rocks that you could climb. There was Niagara Falls, which was a rather small little river down at the end of the garden. There was climbing up through the bushes to go and collect mushrooms. There were, there were midnight feasts, you know, on these squeaky old camp bed things with army blankets. And they were all together in this sleeping hut where if you like moved, everybody could hear everything because there were no walls or anything. Radio Luxembourg would come over the mountain at night and there'd be card games and there'd be lots of people and noise and music and fun. And then we'd all go down, we'd have a swim, like in the pitch dark. And Mike and Dee would form a barrier that we couldn't swim out beyond so as not to lose anybody. Mike always walked ahead because he was very strong. He was strong and he was fast and he'd keep an eye on you by glancing back to see if you were keeping up. Sometimes it rained for the whole month, but Mike kept us entertained. I was about 14, Mike was 16, and he decided it was time that I did the Ring of the Bends, which is six peaks in a horseshoe. And it's about a six to seven hour walk. And we headed off in our shorts, small lunch. Mike had the compass. We went up Ben Lettery first and the mist came down. It had been a beautiful summer. No expectation of mist. The mist descended. By the time we got to collect off, it was black. I could, we lost each other. We just couldn't see the nose in front of our faces. I ended up looking down a cliff at one point. Then I found Mike. He was doing the compass work. He was brilliant on that sort of thing. He loved heading off into the mountains uh, with a compass and a map and a bar of chocolate and emerging many hours later, challenge achieved. I felt totally safe with him. And I think that was a huge part of Mike, that whole sense of fearlessness, that you, you set a challenge, you looked at what you wanted to do, you did your research and you headed off to do it. And then you came home with your adventure into the book of experience, as he always said. And, and you didn't linger over previous adventures. You keep on going. More things to do. Mudslide slim And the blue horizon in fifth year, he was beginning to rebel. And I remember there was, uh, they had a protest led by Michael. They marched up to the front. But uh, I think nobody really took much notice of them. That was that. But that were the first signs of him uh, seeking justice for what he considered were uh, unjust things, inconsistencies. So, yeah, his record collection... Um, J.J. Cale, Robert Wyatt, Florence Foster Jenkins, James Taylor. Yeah, James Taylor. God, I loved that one. Mudslide Slim and The Blue Horizon. This was one of his books. This was Hoyles. Do you remember? I think he actually travelled through the Far East carrying his Hoyles 
I remember he loved Bullfinch's Mythology. That was another one of his favourite books. And then he brought in Gunter Grass and Hermann Hess. I remember trying to make my way through Hermann Hess and, and really wanting to impress him and really wanting to like show that I, I understood Siddhartha. Probably age 10. <laughs> the memories of people we have lost are intertwined with the events of the day. In the early 1970s, the war in Vietnam, the threat of nuclear bombs and the troubles in the North filled the news reports. And in Ireland, young people were beginning to challenge the old structures. When he came to 1780, he decided he'd get his own values and see with the values he'd been given and the things he'd been taught and were they worthwhile or should he branch out. And that's when he sort of deviated from things a bit and uh, went off in his own way. Mike sought out new thinking and fresh perspectives, which he introduced to all of us. This led to heated debate each evening over dinner. But it also opened doors which made it possible for us all to develop our own ideas in his slipstream. Derry is a city of mourning today, and in the bogside people wander up and down Rosville Street, waving their hands in the air as they talk of the horror which came to their street. Mike, as a, as a mid-teenager, responded with great passion to all of these things going on in the world at the time. And I think it was after Bloody Sunday, I remember him saying to me that it was an accident of birth that we weren't deeply involved in what was going on in Northern Ireland. Ah, oh, look at that. Do you remember that jumper? Yeah. Did mum make him that jumper? I think we had all had our mm. hand in knitting it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, he looked awfully. He had long, straggly hair and he looked a mess. I mean, he'd have given a, a coin if you saw him. But... That was him, do you know? I thought he was stunning. He had this light and this energy that just exuded from him. And to be honest, I didn't really notice the hair or the jumpers. He also did look a bit like Robert Redford. It's true. It's true. It's true. Having a look at this report when he was in his final year, the headmaster says he has shown a most mature attitude during the term and has maintained a high level of work throughout he should avoid, however, too strongly held personal opinions. Freedom, 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 freedom. Oh boy, it's kind of funny the things you remember and the things you forget. Like the black and white tiles, of course, for the floor. You know, I remember students sitting out smoking and having their lunch on these stairs. And now it's all empty, there's just pigeon droppings. Mike went on to study architecture in UCD, where he continued to express his ideas. Shane O'Toole was in his class. And Michael just stood up and he said, this is all crazy, you know, um, architecture, first and foremost, is a political act. We'd never heard a discussion that architecture had political implications. I don't think any of our tutors had ever imagined that it had implications of that nature. But Michael was like that. He, he formed his own views and he expressed them. He didn't expect people to follow him. He wasn't looking to be, you know, the, the standout uh, person. He just saw the world in a unique way. He saw the requirement for individuals to personally engage with the world and to take action over, over things that they thought weren't right. And that led us to kind of follow in his footsteps. 
he was different from all of us in an age when we were different from our parents and different even from from uh, people who were five or six years older than us. Hey, Bridge. Hiya, Kat. How are you? I'm good. Just back in from a few days of Perpignan, down at the sea. Oh, how lovely. Listen, come here to me. I have a quick question for you. Um, I have a map here on my knee. That last walk that we did from uh, Rockfixad... Today, we can see so many places in the world online. But in the 1970s, when Ireland felt like a wet grey rock on the edge of the world, our imagination was fed by the stories people sent home. 1975, Paris Banks of Seine, 6pm Saturday. Mike headed off to experience it for himself. Orient Express departs tomorrow, so I have all of today wandering through and around. After an explosive 12 hours during which I buzzed every Bulgarian authority in sight, it seems that I am not going to Istanbul. Problem with border guards. Bulgaria is a really lovely country. My only overnight problem were the wild dogs. Early in the morning, two approached. Having exchanged court... Yesterday, I had five pints of tea in two and a half hours. That's what Nietzsche does for you. I remember when those letters used to arrive. And mum would wait until Dee came home. And they'd vanish into the drawing room and the door would close. And there'd be a very, there'd be a lot of silence for a very long time and we wouldn't know what sort of a letter would have arrived. Perhaps I should mention my ant bites all over. One gets a fright when one sees a mirror after a week's absence. He always kept in touch with home. He pretty well wrote once a week. Just, uh, I had asked him, I said, will you please just once a week drop a note, you don't have to say much, just let us know you're okay. Which he did. And, and love to the tinies. I must write especially to them. All the best, Michael. In 1976, when Mike was 20, he responded to an opportunity to act on his beliefs. This is where I walked in on that day, um, just after lunch, about two o'clock. And there was a huge crowd in the room. And a couple of the drafting tables had been pushed against the wall together as a kind of a speaking platform. And on it, there were three people, Michael and two people I didn't recognize. And Michael explained to us that there was going to be an occupation of five houses in, in Pembroke Street. These houses were going to be demolished uh, by Board Namona. But Michael introduced the other two and, and, and mentioned all the strange faces in the room that they were architecture students from Bolton Street uh, who had decided to save these buildings from demolition. Some responsible action had to be taken to, to, to stop this tragedy for the city. And Michael said UCD should join. And he was going, and who was going to come with him? And I think probably everybody marched out of the studio that day, but none of us knew what we were letting ourselves in for. You know, we went over that afternoon and thought we were going home that evening. That wasn't going to be. And finally tonight, the students who occupied the Georgian buildings in Pembroke Street, owned by Borden Amona and destined for demolition to make way for offices. It's, it's really quite incredible to think that all of this could have gone. Just literally at the edge of Fitzwilliam Square, and the streetscape would have been utterly destroyed by a modern office building uh, inserted here. The occupation lasted almost three months and succeeded in saving the Georgian buildings. It changed a generation of architects. Um, it changed them into believing they had to work with the city and not against the city, uh, as the previous generation of modernists had been brought up to do. Look at 
of the detail yeah. in this. I don't even know what that thing is called, but the bit of the bridge, yeah. the detail in that is... Stunning. When someone's time on earth is short, the memory of every detail of their life takes on a new meaning. Mike started painting quite seriously when he was living in the occupied buildings and shortly afterwards he was invited to have an exhibition in the Project Arts Centre. And he used to ask us to model different facial expressions so that he could paint them. And I used to practice in the wardrobe mirror. <laughs> well, I sincerely hope it was none of those. <laughs> Not that one anyway. Holy God. Extraordinary to think that somebody at 21... Um, an architecture student who has never studied art would be given a show in the Project Arts Centre um, and that the show would be a sellout. Well, I felt very proud of him. Uh, altogether. It was a landmark, you know, to, to have a child, a son, uh, painting and having an exhibition because they wouldn't let him have an exhibition unless they thought it was worthwhile. Rolling, rolling, rolling. With the proceeds from his exhibition, Mike bought a flight to Perth, where he worked for a few months, and he then hitchhiked across Australia and travelled on by boat to Java and Sumatra. Medang, 5th September 1977. Dear all, a brief note to let you know I am alive and free and in proud possession of a shiny new passport valid for one year. In case I had found myself inside, I had already prepared by arranging to go wild pig hunting with the chief of the military police in the Batak region of... I certainly was very excited by his travels because these were places on the globe. These were, these were places on the board in a risk game. And he was off in these places. So that meant I could go to those places as well. So while I knew that mum and dad were, were, were quite concerned as to where he was, for me, this is what we were raised to do. Up to Chiang Mai in the heart of the Golden Triangle and a bit of hill trekking among the Shan tribe people Remnants of one of Alexander the Great's forgotten armies. So Michael went with a guide, but it was ten days overland from Bangkok up to, uh, up to the Golden Triangle. And his guide spoke no English, and Michael spoke no Thai. But it happened that uh, his guide had been uh, briefly a seminarian. And so for that ten days, they conversed in Latin the whole way from Bangkok up to the Golden Triangle. Charlottesville, 23rd of July, 1978. Dear family. Being away gives us all a chance to look at life back home through fresh eyes. The two things which you taught us. When Mike got a chance to study in America, his letters home talked of the importance of detaching oneself from one's background so you could examine it for traces of prejudice, fear and superstition. But above all, the overriding values are the ones that you gave us all and which we love you so very much for. These values of love and responsibility. Of course... I just found a letter that Mike sent us, myself and yourself, when we were... When he was 22, so I would have been 20, and you would have been 18. And He was talking about happiness. None of us is particularly brilliant, but then one's potential doesn't matter in the least. All of us have the education, the sensitivity, and the love for other people to lead happy lives and to help others to find their happiness too. Life is long, and we have plenty of time. Oh, that was our graduation. 
Fantastic. Because Mike and I graduated one after the other. Mm. Hiya. How are you doing? Hiya. How are you? You too. Very good. Very, very good. Where are you Sometimes it's a touch or a sound that triggers memory. And sometimes it's a place. And in the streets of Dublin, I can still see Mike cycling by with his hair and his coat flying or strolling along Stephen's Green with Yvonne, his partner, calling by the galleries he loved and stopping for chats. The artist Michael Caine became a good friend. I remember meeting him in the Waterloo House pub and being impressed by the vitality of Mike and his love for architecture. His sense of love, his love of life. I certainly remember when he would come into the house because there was always uh, quite an impact. There was always so much more conversation, there was always so much more debate, and then there'd be long pots of tea after dinner that would just go on and on and on all night while we had to do the wash-up and whatever else. He always managed to get out of doing the wash-up. He had that skill all of his life, he got out of doing the wash-up. Saturday afternoons then he'd come in and he'd watch the rugby with Dee and again the fire would be lit and I'd lie on the floor and I'd try to be as quiet as possible so that I could actually hear all this adult conversation that was going on. It was all about rugby but it actually got quite philosophical and it got quite, it had a, quite a broad range of reference. Um, it just felt really nice to be in this company. Mike's first job was working as site architect with Shane for the Pope's visit to Drogheda. At the same time, he was making a life and developing ideas with Yvonne. His relationship with Yvonne was extremely important because they both influenced each other. And they both had somewhat revolutionary views as to how architecture should go, especially in Ireland. In 1980, Mike and Yvonne were invited by the Independent Artists Group to prepare an architectural room in their annual show in the Hugh Lane Gallery. Well, the making of a modern street was was a huge thrill. I mean, if architecture was going to be in an art gallery, I mean, architecture didn't communicate with the public before. So this was totally different. We were never shown with artists. It was like architecture was coming into the public for the first time. Most of the architects involved in that exhibition went on to develop into very significant practitioners in the years to come. And the most significant development that took place as a direct result of that exhibition was the redevelopment of Temple Bar through the formation of a group of architects known as Group 91. I'm just coming into Meeting House Square now. (laughs) I'm flabbergasted. There are two large tours here. Um, one of them now leaving. Each must have about 30, 35 people in them uh, who are here to look at the architecture. I mean, when we were doing this, we could never have imagined that the transformation of Temple Bar would put not just Dublin, but Irish architecture on the international map. It has given rise to what is now a flourishing school of architecture. To, to a large extent, they, if there are two people who could be put at the, at the beginning, I would certainly say it's Yvonne and Mike. 
Finding work in 1980s Ireland was tough and Mike turned his hand to everything. Besides working as an architect, he started writing a novel, developing television scripts and restoring the house which he shared with Yvonne, who is by now his wife. I remember Yvonne and Mike coming to Roundstone and she would have been seven months pregnant and we swam out to Mutton Island, put um, Yvonne in a rubber dinghy with the supplies and uh, we all swam around and pushed the rubber dinghy out and had a picnic and came back again. When Matthew was born in late 1983, Mike just popped him in a sling and brought him everywhere, including on site in Cumberland Street, where he was completing an office building he had designed. Oh, Cumberland Street, I mean, that first big building that anyone of our generation had built, um, it was extraordinary that, you know, he had got a building like that built. The concrete was amazing. We were all interested in this sort of bush-hammered concrete. It had been done before, but he did it on these circular columns. Um, so those things were exciting. Uh, but the, be- the best thing really was, I suppose, that Michael kind of, he took it all in his stride. I remember as the building was coming towards completion, he had Matthew in a sling on his front, and he was going up ladders to inspect the building. He was ta- taking site meetings uh, with the contractor, and Matthew was sitting there during the site meetings, and he could only have been oh, five or six months old at the time. He was very happy with Yvonne, and uh, that, my goodness, was going to be a grand marriage, and lovely little fellow. But uh, that's life. When someone dies, you always think about the last time you saw them. I last saw Mike on his 29th birthday, two weeks before he died. I cycled down to him to give him a bottle of martini, and he insisted we share it. And so we spent the evening talking about ideas for film and television and our plans for the future. Bridgie, who was 20 at the time, called by and he cooked for her. I just remember thinking, I'm going to be able to call in and see him, I'm not going to be able to sit, I'm not going to be able to talk. And we'll swap recipes and we'll do, you know, we'll t- discuss ideas and this is what growing up is all about. Yvonne was having friends around for dinner and um, all women. So Mike was out and about in the town and we went for a, a pint in Duke Street. And it was just we were both sitting up at the bar, shooting the breeze talking about life and after he died I just I just felt such an enormous loss for that you know for that male perspective that's totally from family so you he knows where I'm coming from so when you chat about that you're both coming from such a similar place and that would have been the last that was probably about a week before he died on the evening of Wednesday 25th of July 1984 Mike went off for a regular game of soccer with Shane. That was a long, hot summer, and that day, on the way out onto the pitch, we were talking about a new magazine, and Michael had been asked to write an article for it, and I had been asked to write an article for it. We were talking about that. We went out, started the football match, and uh, during the game, early early enough on in the game, I I went out to tackle somebody, and uh, before I got to them, they kicked the ball into the box, Went in high, Michael jumped up with one of their forwards to jump it and just an extraordinary accident happened. Completely accident, there was no no intent, there was nothing slightly edgy at all about it. And he fell on the back of his head and uh, 
It was in the hurly-burly of football, and Michael loved the push and thrust of football. Nobody was to blame, and Yvonne rang from the casualty in Vincent's. She was very, very, very tactful and said Michael had been involved in an accident and it looked, didn't look good at all. So that prepared us for things not going well. Um, and then I remember when they came home from the hospital the following evening and said he took a turn for the worse and he died. And we went in and sat down on the sofa. And Mum just said, you don't expect your children to die before you. That was it. Nobody quite knew what to do because we were all so stunned. It was uncharted territory. I had no idea what to do. And uh, you sent me off down to the village to get uh, peanuts and bananas and tissues. So go down and get bananas for our nerves and nuts for energy and loads of tissues. So I found myself standing in the middle of the Brenna, unable to cross the road. And uh, there was a guy who was I was in college with who happened to be going into a rehearsal play. He was going, oh, and how are you? And I was going, I'm fine. I'm really, I'm fine. I'm just having a problem crossing the road. And he had, I couldn't explain to him. I couldn't tell him. So he helped me across the road and sort of looked sideways and vanished off into town. This is a great spot for Mike, isn't it? View of the sea and a view of the hills. It's lovely. I love his headstone. It's an easel. Um, Michael de Courcy remembered full of life, full of enthusiasm full of the ability to appreciate that's absolutely spot on isn't it Less than three days after Mike left home to play a game of soccer we buried him in Dean's Grange Cemetery Michael Caine spoke at his graveside There was a veil of sadness and uh, shock so that Almost all of it. I, I just remember the the atmosphere of the period of summer and sadness, and uh, I don't remember much about the words I used. Or I, I remember the poem I read. It was called "The Long Garden." It didn't have a great deal of immediate connection with Mike, but somehow. It seemed to fit in with something to do with the atmosphere of loss and sadness, I suppose. The house was very quiet. The house was very quiet. And I felt that everybody retreated into themselves in a way that was quite unusual for us. But nobody knew what the words were to say about this, was my feeling. Time moved at a completely different pace to it had ever moved before. So it was very slow one minute and then six months had vanished. And I was offered a job in Papua New Guinea and I thought, I have no idea what the weather is like in Papua New Guinea, I'll take that job. I had a hundred Australian dollars, no credit card, I couldn't drive and I had no idea whether the person who said he would meet me at the airport in Port Moresby would actually be there. And if he wasn't, what would happen then? It didn't really matter. For me, I was just picking off members of my family one by one, really. You left, I think, the day of my Leaving Cert English exam, as I recall. And so, like, Mike was gone, now Kath was gone. Who's next? I mean, really, that's the way it was. I didn't even know where Papua New Guinea was. If you think about it, but nor no. did I. <laughs> <laughs>
When someone dies, the structure of life as you know it shatters. There is life before their death and life after. And it can take a long time to make sense of the new configuration. But as the waves of grief begin to ease, it is possible to reach out for the memories of everything you knew and loved about them and to absorb their spirit into your new life. Anyone for a song? I don't think the core memory ever fades. I think there's, there's some essential elements that always remain with you. A presence. And Mike's was tremendous. One of the things that's really remained with me for the last 30 years is when I was 10, and with Mike's encouragement, I wrote a letter to the Irish Times. He's the one who made me realise that whoever you are, there's always something you can do to make a difference. I quote him to my kids now. If you're unhappy about something, well, what are you going to do about it? I learned from Mike that you are not defined by one thing. You're not defined by your profession. You can be many things in a short, short life. And so I myself have done things like catering, directing, choreography, teaching. I'm now a producer. Um, But anything is open to me. And if it all stopped in the morning, something else would start again. He knew the importance of the short span that we all have on this earth and that you should do something with it. He did it for himself. But by doing it, by living that way, more or less in a day-to-day way, he inspired us that that was something that you should do. To Mike. Mike. As the years passed, we rebuilt our lives and slowly discovered that Mike lives on in our hearts and through the stories we tell. The great sadness we experience through the loss of a loved one can make us both more fragile and much stronger. And most of all, from their death and from how they lived in the world, we can learn what makes a good life. As long as the sun shall glow, as long as the wind shall glow, as long. Hey, Grandma. Matthew, how are you? Good to see you. Off to football. Yes, <laughs> dressed like in the it. gear. It's beautiful, isn't it? Have a cup of tea. I'd love a cup of tea. I, I have this kind of idea of a kind of a, you know, a strong, loyal father or, or and husband and brother and, and son and a very interesting man. I, I'd love to. I've always said to mum that I'd love to sit down and have a pint. Like it would be amazing, just to chat. Do you know? And really just tease out issues. Um, and really get a kind of an understanding of what he's like and talk about what's gone on in my life. Yeah. Like, I'd be sitting a certain way. My mum, she'd say, Mike, Mike used to sit like that. Like, or, like, I think aesthetically, I look very similar to him. So I think that, that's a kind of a given. But even the small little things, like I remember a couple of years back eating a mandarin and I was opening the mandarin and I, I bit into a part of it and I pulled it apart and I opened it like a kind of a fan exposing the kind of the inside and she was like that's exactly like Mike used to eat his and, but it's something so bizarrely idiosyncratic you're like oh, fair enough <laughs> what do you say to that I don't have them I hope would you like to fire and I'll start dinner I will like to fire yeah Perfect. I think love is very important Um 
I think love gives you a kind of a, a, a basis to to continue and to, to develop. And I think, you know, without without that, I think from just from personal experience, that without someone who loves you or a network of people who you love, it's things are more difficult. It kind of gives you a, a, a foundation, which I'm very thankful that I have a foundation of love. And, yeah. Sunshine, isn't it nice to be home again? Well, I said, isn't it nice to be home again?